run through our safety procedures and policies as we look forward to next Sunday being able to invite at least uh, half the church in for our first in-person service, and so we're very delighted to be able to do that, looking forward to be able to worship with you, and certainly it's, it's great to at least see some of our brothers and sisters here this morning as we consider Esther chapter 5 this morning, continuing our, great, our story, our, our series in this wonderful and great little book that we have. So here we are in Esther chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 1, hear now the word of God. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? This shall be given to you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and to fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart, But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them all the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased him, and he had the gallows made. Our Father, we're thankful for your word in which we can consider this morning, and we trust that you would teach us through it, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you might even work in our lives, that we can turn away from reflecting upon our own needs and desires, our own uh, advancement, our own glory, and that we might learn, even from this passage as you speak to us, how to find our joy in your glory and in your greatness, even as we trust you in troubled times. And so come, we pray, and speak to us, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It was in the year 333 B.C. that Alexander the Great marched his army into Gordium, which was the capital city of the nation of Fergia, 
or modern-day Turkey. And he discovered as he entered the city an ancient wagon tied with a yoke with what, what one Roman historian described as several knots all so tightly entangled that it was impossible to see how they were fastened. Well, tradition had it that the wagon belonged to a man named Gordius, who was the father of the famous King Midas. An oracle was attached to that knot, saying that the one who could untie that knot would become the ruler of Asia. Well, according to an ancient chronicler, Alexander the Great instantly was seized with an ardent desire to untie this Gordian knot. And, and there, so he wrestled with it and worked on it for some time, but he found no success whatsoever. And then he stepped back and declared, it, it makes no difference how it is untied. He then drew his sword, sliced the knot in half with a single stroke. And the oracle, of course, was fulfilled. As we know, Alexander the Great would go on to conquer much of Asia before his death at age 32. Since that time, the phrase, a Gordian knot, has been used to describe a complex and seemingly unsolvable problem. Well, I think as we're here in Esther, we, we see that there is a, quite a knot being tied, don't we? The, the Jewish people are all tied up into it. King Ahasuerus, or his Greek name, King Xerxes, uh, rules over the world, which in this day was the Persian Empire, the largest empire ever up until that point. And we know, as we've seen in our study of Esther, he was not a kind and good man. He's Xerxes the Xerxes, right? He is, of course, ruthless and uncaring and self-glorifying and perverted and all the rest. He has married a Jewish woman named Esther, not because he loves her, but because she is particularly beautiful and compliant. They've been married now for five years, though he doesn't see her much, does he? In fact, he hasn't seen her for 30 days, not because he's on a mission trip in some foreign land, right? because he has moved on to other women in his harem and therefore has no need for his queen. He also has a right-hand man named Haman, right? And feel free to boo if you like, okay? Okay, Haman the horrible. Everyone bows to Haman. All are supposed to bow to him, except this one guy, Mordecai, who happens to be Queen Esther's father. And it makes Haman so incredibly mad that he decides that I'm not only going to kill Mordecai, but I'm going to kill all the people to which Mordecai belongs, namely the Jews. About 15 million people living in the Persian Empire. Makes Haman, he's kind of Hitler 1.0. And Xerxes, of course, agrees and passes a law that in 11 months all the Jews will be annihilated, will be slaughtered. And it seems to us that Esther is the only, in the only place where someone could do something for the Jewish people, for the people of God. She is, of course, as we saw last week, both Persian royalty and a Jew. And therefore, she has both access to the king and a desire to represent the Jewish people, pointing us to Christ and his uh, mediation for us, who is both divine and human, the one mediator that we have between God and man. And so Esther is in that position, but we, we left it last week with a pile of problems standing before her. I mean, first of all, she can't even approach the king without being uh, uh, killed. There is a law that you approach the king uninvited, you get killed, except if he is in a particularly good mood and ho holds out his golden scepter and welcomes you. But, but even, even if she's welcome, then you have the problem to convince the king to, to take her side, thereby humiliating himself by going against his own law, and on top of that, costing him 10,000 talents of silver, which was promised to him by Haman, which is about half of the Persian Empire's annual income. Uh, third, on top of that, you, you, you realize this man is not really committed to his queens. You just ask Esther's 
predecessor. He's already gotten rid of one. Fourth, she was going to have to reveal her Jewish identity, which she has been keeping secret from her husband for these last five years. And on top of that, fifth, we might say, then even if the king wanted to do something, there's a, there's a matter of the fact that the Persian laws are irrevocable. So even if he wanted to, what can he do? And yet, despite all these obstacles, the, the mountain of trouble before her, Esther says, as we saw last time, I'll give it a try. And if I perish, well, then I perish. She is willing to die. And so the people of God fast as we kind of hold our breath and watch her against all odds seek to save God's people. And what, of course, as we'll see today, while she seeks to save them, Haman plots to kill. This is really, chapter 5 is, as we saw reading through it, a tale of two plans. One birthed out of prayer and fasting. One created from rage and hatred. There are two people competing for two different things, which kind of raises the question for us, and I think we should keep in front of us as we work our way through this passage, whose plans are you working on? You have plans, certainly, don't you? There are things that you are working on. Are your plans for God's advancement or your own? Are they for your glory or are they for God's glory? What are you giving yourself to? Are your plans Esther-like or are they Haman-like? In fact, there's not, I would suggest to you, there's not even two plans. There's actually three. There is one who is planning behind the scenes. Of course, is the Lord himself. This is what the book of Esther is mainly about, that God rules. We call this his providence, even when we can't see him. Sometimes we read scripture and we see God's plan. It's very clear. Take, for instance, Moses delivering the people from, uh, from Egypt. God shows up in a burning bush, says, this is what we're going to do. And then Moses goes into Egypt and there's plagues and God works here and works there and works there. And it's very clear how God is working. But most of the time, God doesn't work like that. Most of the time, God is subtle most of the time, we're in the kind of the middle of the story, and we have no idea what's going on. Most of the time, life is filled with trouble and difficulty, and we don't know how it's going to work out. It's as if we're living on Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and we know that there are troubles happen, but we're not sure how this is going to work its way through. And yet we are called, and the book of Esther is going to help us, I hope, as we study these ten weeks in it, to really work up a faith, a trust in the Lord, that he will work, even when we can't see him, for his own glory and for our good. And therefore, we too should work for God's glory, just like Esther is, as you see, first of all, Esther's wisdom. Esther's wisdom. You're going to find her very skillful and brave and cunning, and delicate, and clever, and I think there's probably principles that we might even glean from how she approaches this king. Notice, first of all, she's very active. According to Esther 5, in verse 1, we read, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. This king is always on his throne, isn't he? He really seems to like his throne. He's usually drinking when he's on his throne, right? I mean, he's all about his throne. We know from archaeology that his throne room was a magnificent structure. The the ceiling was 65 feet high. It was extraordinary height at this day. There were uh, 
36 pillars in his throne room, and wherever you stood, it was designed, wherever you stood in the throne room, you had an unobstructed view of the king's throne. And there the king upon it, of course, as he acts like the little god that he thinks he is. And Esther, of course, goes into that place. As we've already established, putting herself at great risk in order to do so. But she wants to put herself in a place where God can work through her. And I simply just want to pause here and mention that oftentimes we, we uh, believe that God's called us to do something. We even agree that we are going to act and we begin to pray about it. And then we wait, okay, God, open the door. Or God, okay, you do something now in order for that to be my indication that it's time to go. Esther just goes in. Listen, there's a time to pray and there's a time to act. Jesus goes to Gethsemane, he prays, and then he says, let's get up and go. There's a time when we finish praying and we begin to put ourselves in the position where God can use us. I wonder if there's opportunities, my brothers and sisters in Christ, in front of you. That might even be scary, might even be risky, that we must act upon them. So pray, of course, yes, absolutely, but then we have to open our mouth. Then we have to actually put feet to our actions. Is there anything God is calling you to do that you keep delaying? You keep saying, well, I'll get to that, I'll I'll get to that. She says, I'm going to do it. She's going to put herself in the position where God can use her. She acted, but you notice she's not hasty. I think we also see in verse 1 that that, uh, she's very thoughtful. What is the the saying we sometimes use? Only fools rush in. You'll see here, Esther's no fool at all. She resolved to do something, clearly. But she has given a great thought as to how she's going to do it. Sometimes we think, okay, God has called me to do this. I'm just going to go in and say what's on my heart. I'm going to charge in. I don't care how it impacts others. And I'm just going to let it all out. Well, notice Esther doesn't follow that route. In fact, many scholars think there's an emphasis on her attire. You notice verse 1 tells us that she put on her royal robes. That is, she dresses like a queen. She gave thought to this. You wonder if she even went back and consulted Haggai. Remember him, the, the eunuch in charge of the, the, con, uh, the concubines? And she first consulted him when she first went into the king, and uh, told, she did whatever he told him to do told her to do. You wonder if she went back to him and says, what do you think, what do you think about this outfit? Should I wear this? What, should, I, should I go with heels or, or flats? Okay. Well, of course, the answer is always heels, and so, right? And she goes in, uh, asking and thinking clearly about what it is she is going to wear. Now, I think some people think, well, that's just nonsense. Why do we even care about that? If God is in it, certainly these things don't matter at all. And certainly some have come to that conclusion, but Esther doesn't seem to come to that conclusion. In fact, Peter will later tell us that wives, if you want to have influence upon your husbands, if you want to influence your husbands towards God, you need to honor your husband. Many people think the fact that she dressed like a queen before she approached the king was a way to respect him. It'd be kind of like putting on, on a tie before you went into court. I want to respect the process. I want to respect the judge that sits there. We'll see later that she speaks to him very respectfully. If it pleased the king, if I found favor in the king's eyes and all the rest. She doesn't come in. She's not yelling at him. She's not browbeating him. Her hands are not on her hips, right? She's, she's not giving the king the chicken neck. She's, not, she's, right? she's going in there and she's being very respectful. I'm going to respect my husband. Why? So she can influence him. 
I think it's probably true for all of us who are under authority. I think children, you would learn this well. You want to have influence in your parents. Respect them. Citizens, employees. Likewise, we should respect those who are, have authority over us. And here she is. Now she's in royal attire. Of course, we wonder how it's going to go, don't we? We don't, we don't know whether this king will receive her. And so we breathe a sigh of relief as we read verse 2. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And so the initial danger is over, isn't it? God's answered uh, the prayers of the Jewish people. The king gives her, what is the phrase? Gives her favor. She has one favor in the eyes of the king. May we too, as we go on, the king's biz- uh, on our God's business, win favor with those that we want to speak to. It's David Platt, who, of course, you know, pastors just down the road, prays that when, with the people that he's sharing the gospel with, that he said, God, will you give me favor with them? Or prays for our missionaries as they go uh, to unreached people group. God, will you give them favor in their eyes? Right? Not favor for our own gain, but favor that they might listen to us. Right? Esther was granted favor. The king is going to listen to her. May God grant Pastor Paul, favor there in Ensalam, Ghana. May, may God grant Fernando and Luis favor in Guatemala. May God grant our missionary partners in northern Iraq favor among the Bedini Kurds. May God one day grant our church planning team in Lovettsville favor amongst the neighbors there in Lovettsville. May they look upon us as you and I are bold for Christ. May they look upon us with favor. Listen to what we have to share. For three days they fasted and prayed, and and God answers. He looks upon her with favor. And of course, he knows something's on her heart. She would never have risked her life otherwise. And so we see in verse 3, he wants to know why she's here. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even uh, to half my kingdom. Half his kingdom. That sounds pretty generous, doesn't it? Right? Half my kingdom. And this is a big kingdom, by the way. It's not your kingdom. I don't know what your kingdom exists of. Maybe a dozen face masks and some school debt, and you say, you could have half of it, right? I mean, this is the Persian Empire. He said, half my kingdom. Of course, this is an idiom. He's not actually going to offer her half his kingdom. It's a way of saying, I'm in a giving mood, right? I'm feeling generous. Just name what you like. Remember, Herod would do this in the New Testament. I believe it's the Gospel of Matthew, where he's seduced by his niece, and he says, hey, listen, ask whatever you want. I'll give you half my kingdom. She sadly said, remember, I want John the Baptist head on a platter. Of course, he went through. He gave her what she asked. No, he didn't want to. So King Xerxes is saying, listen, ask me whatever, and it's yours. I'll give it to you. Of course, here's the moment we're waiting for. This is why she's here. There's this edict. The people of God are under threat of annihilation. We, have, we saw last week that who knows for such a time as this that you have been appointed as queen. Now the king says, ask it, and I will give it. And so she comes and says, this is what I want. Verse 4, and Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Why don't you uh, come to a dinner party that I have prepared? We're left thinking, what in the world is she doing? I mean, literally, there's a decree of annihilation on 15 million people. Their hopes are on her shoulders, and she wants to throw a dinner? It's very confusing, isn't it? It was Alistair Begg who says, you have a camera and lights and no action. 
Right? What's going on? Well, I would suggest to you this is Esther's strategy. I don't think she's choking. I don't think she's freaking out. I think she's being strategic. Well, what do we know about this king already from our study? He likes parties, right? Doesn't he? He likes to eat. In fact, I'll let you ladies in on a little secret. Men like to eat. We all do, okay? Remember when Naomi tells Ruth, she he says, well, okay, before you crawl into the man's bed and ask him to marry you, wait until he's finished dinner, okay? That's wise counsel, okay? So always wait until after dinner before you show your husband the debt in the car, okay? Or before you pull out the medical bill, before you ask him to paint the house, wait till he has a full belly, right? Make sure Mordecai has eaten. Esther's no dummy. She understands this. She is using strategy. And so she says, well, why don't, why don't you come to dinner? See, listen, having faith in God, believing God is in something, does not mean be as dumb as possible. Okay? We can trust the Lord and have strategy. Okay? Remember Abraham, he went to a war against four undefeated kings in Genesis 14, I believe it is. He clearly trusted God, and he sneak attacked in the middle of the night. Okay? So we trust the Lord and we sneak attack. We trust the Lord and we are wise. We are strategic. What was it that Jesus says? I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. And so what would you like, queen? Well, she says, I would like to throw you a magnificent dinner party. Does that sound okay? Uh, for, you know, and, and, and you could bring Hitler along. I mean, Haman along. Okay? Right? And we just have a wonderful time, won't we? Well, the king very much likes this idea, doesn't he? As you see in verse 5, then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared, right? And so, of course, they're there eating and having a wonderful time, I trust. And yet the king knows there's something on Esther's heart. Listen, again, she would not have risked her life to come into his presence just to have a date with him, right? And so he asks her a a second time, as we see in verse 6. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Now, of course, is the moment we're waiting for. Okay, We thought it was in the throne room. Now Now we understand it's at dinner. He's got a full belly. The wine has been flowing. As we see, he's in a giving mood. So ask it, and I'm going to give it to you. And so we see Esther come with her request in verse 7. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And again, we're wondering, what is going on? Some commentators think she may have choked a little bit. She just couldn't get it out, and that's understandable. She's She's dining with the devil, isn't she? And her husband's not much better. And yet I'm led to think that this, once again, is part of all Esther's strategy. That she wants to position her husband to agree to grant her request before he even knows what her request is. In fact, I think wives have been doing this for centuries. Right? I mean, get him to agree, and what she will do, get him to agree one more time to grant her request. The more times he says, I'll give you whatever you want, the harder it will be for him to back out. He'd have too much to lose, too much face to lose if he did so. One commentator puts it this way, Esther was playing the king like a trophy fish. 
taking her time, not rushing to reel him into the net. She was carefully maneuvering him into a position where he would be virtually obligated to do whatever she asked. And yet we wonder, as we read on in this story, if such tactic is going to backfire. Because Esther is not the only one working. Esther is not the only one with a plan, as we see, secondly, Haman's folly. If Esther is wise, then Haman is the fool, isn't he, as we see in verse 9. And Haman went out that day and joyfully, uh, went out that day joyfully and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. So you see Haman going from great joy to utter anger. I wonder, what's the fastest you've ever gone from jubilation to despair? I think for most of us, the answer is obvious. It's sports, right? Okay. You, got, you all remember what sports was, right? Remember when we played sports in this country? Okay. And, uh, you know, you're watching your team. You're, they're about to win the game and, 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 you know, bring the championship home. And some joker's banging on a trash can in the opposing dugout. And uh, boom, off it goes. A home run is hit over the fence. And you go from euphoria to this fetal position, weeping there uh, as a grown man. Or so I've heard this happens to people. Okay? And, and so, right, we go from euphoria to utter despair. Well, that's Haman, isn't it? Except he doesn't love baseball like a normal person. He, he loves himself. He, he loves power. He loves glory. He loves the recognition above all else. He wants to be praised. And so he leaves this feast, and he's, according to the scripture, joyful and glad of heart, right? He's, uh, why? Well, Queen Esther has invited me to dinner with the king for now a second time. I mean, he has made it. He's Haman the happy He's got a, a song in his heart and a bounce in his step, and he's whistling a tune, and he's just full of joy. I mean, imagine if you go home today, and the, the first lady of the United States, she calls you up on the phone says, Hi, I was wondering if, if you would like to come over to, to dinner with Donald and I. And uh, you say, What is this, kind of, some kind of a state dinner? And she says, No, no, it's just the three of us. And uh, okay, and, and some of you would, and you would, you would be very delighted and it's such a wonderful time that while you're on the way out, she says, You know, this is so fun, so much fun. Let's do this again tomorrow night. And I'm at, listen, for this fantasy to work, pick whatever president you need to, okay? All right? If it's not uh, President Trump, if, uh, Kennedy, or uh, Reagan, whoever, Lincoln, okay? Uh, we all like Lincoln, right? There's a Mary Todd. She calls you on the phone, and she says, listen, let's come to dinner. You're dining with Lincoln. Would you not be pretty, pretty stoked about that? I mean, it's pretty exciting times. And Haman is dining with the king and the queen, and they're, they're going to do it again tomorrow. And so he's skipping down the path. This is the best day of his life. And then he sees Mordecai. And, and everyone's jumping to their feet and groveling before Haman, and Mordecai's like, whatever. He's sitting at his desk, doesn't pay any attention to him, doesn't bow, doesn't even rise, and, and continues with his obstinance. And to be perfectly honest, I don't know what to do with that. I, I kind of shake my head and think, okay, buddy, the reason there are a death sentence on 15 million people was because you alone did not bow. If I was Mordecai, I would be like bowing like crazy. I'd be bowing so much I'd be somersaulting in front of this man, begging at his feet, please don't annihilate my people. But I don't, Mordecai doesn't bow. I don't know if his back doesn't work or what's going on. I'm still not bowing, he says. Of course, this fills Haman with wrath because he lives for his own public honor. He lives for his own recognition. So he's dining with the queen. He has the highest position in the empire. He, he is, he is full, full of wealth and riches. And yet one guy does not bow. And so he blows a gasket. 
Of course, he keeps it together for a moment, as you see in verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And so he's going to gather his buddies together because he needs to vent a little bit. And he begins there in verse 11, doesn't he? And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions which he had, uh, which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king, and blah, 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 right? Uh, you know, have you seen my car? Have you seen my office? You know how many people work for me, right? Have, have, have you seen my watch? Have you seen my television and, and all the rest? Let me remind you, in case you forgot, how great I actually am, okay? And there he's recounting it over and over again. I'm sure these guys have heard it before, haven't they? And he, he even recounts his family. You notice that, how many sons I have. And there his wife is sitting as if she's forgotten how many babies she's birthed. Oh, thank you very much, husband. Now I remember how many we have, Right? I mean, listen, there's a way to be thankful for your family, and there's a way to brag about your family, which is obnoxious, okay? And we know we can put Haman in that category. This is like Facebook gone crazy. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. Aren't I great? He's self-conceited, self-promoting, self-applauding, self-absorbed, kind of like you and me. Let Haman be the mirror I think he's designed to be because we all have this tendency in our hearts. Life is about me. For you, it might not be public recognition, but it might be comfort for you or success for you or wealth for you or leisure for you. We all have this sinful tendency in our heart. It was Luther's that said sin is the self-bending in on oneself. And we want people to think highly of us. There's a bit of narcissist living in all of us. You remember that Greek god, don't you, who went to the pool to quench his thirst and there saw his reflection in the pool and thought it was so beautiful he fell in love. And he kept kind of leaning down in order to kiss his own reflection and whenever he did it would get distorted and he would pull back. Kept getting thirstier and thirstier and thirstier and yet would not leave his reflection And there he died of thirst, and that's why we have this flower named after Narcissus, this bright, beautiful flower, but bent down as if it's gazing in a pool of water in itself. We all have this in us. We all all are quick to think about ourselves and our rights and our needs, how we're offended. You you know you struggle with pride, and we're going to consider this more next week, God willing, as we get into Esther 6, but you know one way we struggle with pride? Haman shows us if we're easily offended. He's offended that Mordecai will not bow. If we are easy to be insulted and we think, how dare they treat us like that? How dare they say that about me? And it disrupts our peace and steals our joy. They don't, they don't, they don't treat us the way we think we deserve. Well, we, we, if we, we have that attitude, we have not come to appreciate the forgiveness that we have in Christ. And what we truly do deserve is the judgment of God. Everything else we get is a gift from him. And Haman clearly struggles with this as he lays out all of, all of his, his accomplishments before his people. Finally, he gets to the best news there in verse 12. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one come, no one but me, come with the king to the feast she has prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Right? Uh, it goes on, I, I'm feasting with the king and queen, and yet even that's not good enough. As long as what? Mordecai does not recognize my greatness. 
as you see in verse 13, yet all this is worth nothing to me as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. I mean, you think about his life, it's just great. He has accomplished everything that he, he must have had, uh, the ambitions that he had, and set, yet Haman is still miserable. I mean, it's the best day of his life. He's very rich. He's very powerful. He, he's, he's got a large family. He's hanging out with the king and queen. He can do whatever he wants. He, I mean, he even has friends, which I think is a miracle, right? But I can't enjoy any of it. As long as this man will not recognize my greatness. Right? One has said that pride and discontentment sleep in the same bed. And we may have everything working out for us, but there's one thing we don't have, or one thing we do have we wish he did not, and we draw it so close that it blocks our view out from everything else that God has given us. This is Haman. He's got full rage over just one little thing. Now, I wonder, if, if you were one of Haman's friends, and he had called you to vent a little bit, what would you have said to him? How would you have approached him at this point? What counsel would you have given him? I wonder if you, if you would have helped him see that, that our strong emotions, whether they're good or bad, often reveal the idols in our hearts. So our rage, what gives us rage, what gives us joy, what gives us peace, what gives us worry or fear, often show us what we're living for. So if our idol's being threatened, people will violently rise up to defend it in anger. Right? And, and, and if, if, it's, if our idol's being stoked and fed, we, we find this great sense of joy and peace and satisfaction. Right? This is the, it's very, I think, very helpful to see what is the things that have risen up in our life. And Haman is this case study. It goes from this emotional spectrum, from full rage to utter delight. Right? He's, when his idol's being fed, he's super happy. When his idol's being threatened, he is filled with wrath. And it's clear what his idol is. It's, I'm sure we've said already, power, certainly, respect, yes, public recognition, honor, all of that is what he is living for. By the way, you notice none of these things are evil. The Bible's not against honor. It's not against public recognition. The Bible's not even against power. The idols are always good things that we turn into God things when we elevate them too high into God's position. And I think as we look at Haman, it would be very helpful for us to think about what are the idols in our lives. What are the things we have exalted too high and which we find our identity in? One way to find them is to follow your emotions. Where do you get happy? Where do you get joy, peace? Where do you get depressed and fearful and angry? It's usually good things. Relationships, comfort, security, leisure, well-behaved children, success, beauty, accomplishments. All these are good things. But they become bad things when we put our identity in them. What the Bible helps us understand is that our identity should be found in the fact that God loves us. That we, we have been accepted by God through Christ. That God, in fact, God loves you so much that he's willing to send his son to die for you. I mean, what greater display of love could God have shown us? I wonder, if what if we truly believed that we had the applause of God as we are united to Christ? What if we truly believe that, that the one uh, whose opinion truly matters delights in us because of Jesus? And then when others dishonor us, when others disrespect us, when others uh, treat us poorly, we, we can say, so what? You, you can't touch my joy. 
You can't rob me of my peace where it's not found in your opinion of me. It's not found in this. It's not found in that. It's not found in that thing over there. It's found in the fact that the one who matters most in my life delights in me, has received me, has accepted me in Christ and rules over my life and shall forevermore. And then what happens is we become free to love others. Rather than use them to feed our idols, we're actually free to serve them as Christ has shown us. See, Haman needs that counsel. Haman, don't you see the idol in your life? It's ruling over you. You should bow your knee to God and seek his forgiveness. And yet we don't see that counsel given. Sadly, he's told to double down on this idol, as you see in verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Now you remember, Mordecai's already a dead man. I mean, there's an edict of his annihilation. Haman just has to wait a handful of months for that to be fulfilled. That's too long, isn't it? You can't wait. And so we're going to build a gallows that night and kill Mordecai on it in the morning. Gallows, by the way, the word gallows is the Hebrew word, simply the Hebrew word for tree. As I've shared with you in an early study of of Esther, this probably is not the old Western picture you have in your mind where they put the rope around your neck and, and they hang you from that. This is the precursor to crucifixion. The Persians invented crucifixion. The Romans would perfect it. And so what what Haman plans to do is he's going to crucify Mordecai on on this pole. And how high? Did you see that? Fifty cubits, which is about 70 to 75 feet tall, which is, of course, just a totally absurd height. I mean, they didn't have cranes back then. Their buildings weren't this tall. This would tower above all the skylines there in Susa. They say to him, not only kill him, but make sure you kill him on a pole that is really, really, really high. Why? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? So that everyone will know what happens when you disrespect Haman. And again, how, does this not show the uh, reflection of our own heart? How often do we not only want personal revenge, we not only uh, want to get back on somebody, but we want it to be public. We want them to suffer, but we want them to suffer in a humiliating way. Well, certainly Haman has that tendency, as we see this idea pleased Haman. Right? He's happy again. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm happy because I'm thinking about killing this man. And so he gets the gallows ready. And what, what his plan is, at least, is to abuse the power that has been entrusted to him by the government in the brutal killing of another man, of another race, in a degrading and humiliating way. And that doesn't sound so strange to us, does it? Sadly. As you know, this Monday, May 25th, we once again in this country witnessed the tragic death and the appalling abuse of power in the most degrading and inhumane way as George Floyd was killed, African-American man, while white police officer Derek Chauvin pressed his knee into Floyd's neck for seven minutes while George Floyd pled for his life, eventually calling for his mother. And he did so until this man died. And 
I would encourage you just for a moment, my brothers and sisters in Christ, to lay aside your politics and let your Christian theology influence the way you respond to such things. George Floyd bore the image of God. And therefore, he had value, dignity, and worth in God's eyes. His death, therefore, is an utter tragedy. And I believe gives evidence to what our African-American neighbors and friends have been sharing with us for quite some time, that there is in this country a deep-seated, a complex, a multi-generational sickness and a racial tension. And it is once again shown to us in very crass and terrible ways. And of course, what is the response to that now? We can't help but see it as we turn on the news. It's just more sin. And sin begets sin. As now we have violent rioting in the cities of our great land, ruining more lives. People had no involvement in this whatsoever. Lives are being taken through rioting in response to this death, calling into question, of course, the legitimacy of of the majority of people who want to protest peacefully. And, of course, sin on top of that as upright police officers who are just as sickened as you and I are about the abuse of power that took place on Monday, now losing the trust and the credibility that with the community in which they serve that they have worked so hard to earn. And I, I, listen, we, it seems like we keep going over this, and it seems like every generation, the riots break out as, as this issue takes place. I only know one solution. It's Christ. I don't know how else we fix this problem other than Jesus who has come into this world. Let's be very careful here. Scripture is unequivocal to reconcile all races into him. To make people from all tongues and all languages and all nations and all ethnicities and all colors of skin into one family with one father and one older brother named Jesus Christ. That Jesus has not come into this world and and utter grace and, and you should fill your heart with utter gratitude. Jesus has not come into this world to defeat his enemies. He has come to defeat enmity and hatred. He has come to divide, break down the dividing walls of hostility. And therefore, I tell you, of all the people in this world, those who should be the most loving of people different than them should be those who have been saved by Jesus Christ. Namely, you and I. And so we must, as God's people, love our neighbors as ourselves, regardless of what they look like. We must seek to be the good Samaritan that crosses ethnic boundaries as Christ has called us to be, as Christ has shown himself to be. And therefore, may I call us once again to repent of any bigotry that we may have in our hearts, that we would put aside, Christian, our partisan loyalties and be willing to listen to other people who have different experiences than us, willing to help others, willing to love others as we long to be the salt and light that God has called us to be in this world. And sadly, of course, Haman, like so many after him, would hear nothing of it. No, Haman delighted in killing Mordecai the Jew. Of course, this creates a problem for us, doesn't it, in the story of Esther? We wonder, did Esther make a fatal mistake in asking for that second banquet? Right? Tomorrow night, 
because Mordecai is going to be killed in the morning. See, tomorrow night's too late. Mordecai will be dead in the a.m. The feasting comes in the p.m. And make matters worse, Esther has no idea of Haman's plan. And so we end chapter 5 in suspense. Esther and Haman both working on their own plans, both totally oblivious to the other's agenda. It's kind of like we end chapter 5, kind of like watching the runner come around third and the outfielder's throwing the ball into the catcher. Let me explain. That's a baseball metaphor, right? You remember baseball, right? And here they come, and we want to know who's going to ride first. Is the runner going to make it, or is the ball going to get there first? But but what we don't see in Esther 5, we'll see it, I think, in Esther 6, is that the game is rigged. And not by some cheaters down in Houston, okay? Or the Boston Black Sox. It is rigged by a sovereign and good God who is rigging it, not simply for his own glory, but for the good of his people. As we see, lastly and briefly, God's plan in his sovereignty. Consider God's sovereignty. As I mentioned, it's, it's really hard to see here in chapter 5, isn't it? And We'll see it again in chapter 6. It will be, be very subtle, though. There's no parting of the sea. There's no closing of a lion's mouth. It's mysterious. It's confusing. And yet God is working. God is working. And I don't know if, you, I mean, just turn on the news. <laughs> I understand I'm saying on, what is it, May 31st, 2020, God is working in our land. And you turn on the news and say, you might be tempted to say, really? Come on. Right? Because our cities are on fire and our hospitals are full and we're not even allowed to come to church yet. And when we do, we have to have face masks. I mean, listen, if, if God may be ruling, but if, God, if I was ruling, I would do things a little differently. Right? Things would be different if I were in charge. You might be tempted to think. I, I mean, I, I think that's true. If I were in charge, things would be, definitely be different. I mean, every time someone did something bad, I'd give them a little zap. Right? Just, just to let them know I'm watching. Hey, I saw that, right? Or every time you did something good, like you prayed with your kids before bed, it's like, bam, 10 bucks in the bank account. Well done, right? You get a little reward there. That's how we would rule, right? You, you say, listen, this world is full of chaos. It's full of crime. It's full of discord. It's full of disease. If I were in charge, I would rule differently. And which I think it's helpful to remember the, the wonderful words of J. Vernon McGee. Who said famously, this is God's world, he does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a world. Right? All right, so if you, you can rule your world however you want once you get one, but you don't have one, do you? In fact, you're living on someone else's, and he's going to rule it his way. He is the Lord. He doesn't ask for our opinion. He doesn't ask for our counsel. He rules according to his grace and his might and his glory. And yes, there is no doubt that he rules in ways that are mysterious to us. It was William Cooper, that great hymn writer, who was discipled by another great hymn writer, John Newton, who you may have heard of, wrote a little song called Amazing Grace. And William Cooper struggled lifelong with depression. In fact, there came a time in his life where he decided to commit suicide, and he uh, called for a carriage to come and bring him to a river about three miles away where he intended to throw himself in the river and drown to death. And, and the, the carriage rider, knowing a little bit of Cooper's uh, disposition and even seeing it as he got into the carriage, began to pray, God, will you work here in this situation? And amazingly, as he drove just a little bit of ways, he drove into a dense fog. And then he, he decided to get purposely lost. And he went up one country road and down another country road and around another. 
And, and, and he kept doing this, and eventually Cooper fell asleep in the back of the carriage. And After hours later, he returned him home, and Cooper awoke and, and said, how did we make it back home? And the carriage driver said, well, I'm sorry, sir, there was the fog, and, and we got turned around a little bit, and, and we couldn't quite make it to the river. Uh, and, and Cooper would go into his home, and he said, I had a renewed state of mind. And he pondered how God had spared his life. In this strange providence of God. And that evening in 1774, he wrote his most famous hymn, in which he penned these words, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And it might seem as if God is frowning in his providence in our day. We must trust, based upon what we know in Christ, that God is smiling, even as he rules for his own good, for his own glory, and for our great gain. He rules in mysterious ways, there is no doubt. Very unlikely ways, very unanticipated paths. I mean, he chose a Jewish orphan girl to save his people. What an unlikely savior that is. And that's not the first. He chose a coward who was threshing wine, uh, thr- uh, threshing wheat in a wine press to save his people. He, he, he chose a tiny shepherd boy to save his people against the undefeated enemy. And ultimately, he chose a crucified rabbi hanging on a Roman cross to save his people, to pay for your Haman-like sins and my Haman-like sins that we might now approach the king, the high king of heaven, not with shaking knees and wondering hearts, but that we would come before him, um, not, not with a, a subtle strategy, not with political maneuvering, trying to manipulate him into helping us, but instead that we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Right? We come because Jesus Christ's blood has covered our sin. And there, because of the work of Christ, we find our Lord with his scepter lifted high, welcoming us, welcoming us into his presence because we stand in the work of Jesus. That ought to, my brothers and sisters, fill our hearts with indomitable joy. That ought to shield the peace within us when it's buffeted by the troubles in our day. Our joy should be far more invincible than that which Haman found. You do understand that we too have received a promotion in our king's land. In fact, we have become princes and princesses to our great king. That we too have a great family, do we not? And not just many sons as Haman bragged, but siblings all over this world and every nation and language and tribe and tongue and a father in heaven and an older brother who reigns at his side. That we too have been given riches and not just half a man's kingdom, but the Bible tells us that we are co-heirs with Christ of a redeemed and perfected world. And in just a little while, we too shall dine with the king. And we will feast with him forever and ever. And not just some king of Persia or some other land, but the high king of heaven himself. And of course we all know that, don't we? And I feel like we, we say, yes, yes, I know that's all true. I, I know all that I got in Jesus. But he cut me off. And I'm filled with rage. 
or this child will not respect me and so I'm filled with rage or she said something mean to me or she posted something and I'm filled with despair and worry. I want to be honored. I want to be respected. I want to be cared for. And we go from joy to despair because we lose sight of what we have in Christ. We elevate these little things to the point of godhood in our life. I think this is why Paul prayed when he wrote to the Ephesians that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we would know the riches of our glorious inheritance in Christ. I wonder if we would do well this week to pray that prayer. It's found in Ephesians 1, and I believe it's verse 18 or verse 19, that, that we would begin to pray, God, let me see what you've given me. Let me see what my inheritance is. Let me, therefore, trust you in difficult days, right? Then I might fix my heart not on what I don't have what, or what I have that I don't want, but I might fix my, what, uh, my heart on what Christ has promised me, what Christ is doing, what Christ has done for me, that I have the king's favor. And this king rules the world even now. That these idols may not rule our hearts. When we cast them aside, repent from them, bow our knee again to King Jesus, that we might find our joy in him. I wonder, my brothers and sisters, my friends, my neighbors who who are watching wherever you might be, do you have this king's favor? Has he raised his scepter high to you? He will if you yield your life to Christ. Jesus has come to this world to die for sin and sinners that he might pay our debt and rose three days later victoriously as the risen Lord. And now he offers us grace and mercy if we would yield our life to him in faith. That you might, even in your your living room, wherever you might be, you might call out to Christ as he has taught us, have mercy on me, a sinner. That you might receive his grace and be accepted to his family and know that the only one truly who truly counts in this world has given you his favor. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for uh, your great word and the challenge that it is to us. Will you help us to repent of the sin that is in our life, the idols that we have exalted? the things that take your place. Let me cast these aside and realize that what we have in Christ, what Christ has done for us, the love in which he has shared for us and given to us, the love in which we shall enjoy for all eternity. My, we find our peace there, our joy there, our assurance there, that we would not be buffeted with worry and dread and fear and anger and depression and all the rest. Help us as Christians to fix our eyes upon Christ as we turn from the idols in our own hearts. We pray as well for our land, for our country, in the midst of, of great chaos, and great uncertainty as, as death and, and disease and disaster and rioting and all the rest seems to rage around us. Will this not help us come to ourselves that there is only one solution? When we keep repeating this over and over again, there is one solution, and it is found in Jesus. Will you not, in your kindness to us, bring us from these dark days that we might come into a time of rejoicing as you renew your people and expand your kingdom. And so let your people be bold. Let the Christians represent you well. May we adorn the gospel with what we say and what we post and how we talk and love that you may be exalted and Christ may be known as the Savior he promises to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.